So Money episode 886, Ramit Sethi, author of the New York Times bestseller, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I was absolutely flabbergasted and surprised that this is one of those things that people really don't talk about. And then when you do, it's behind closed doors. Well, we are opening those closed doors on the podcast today. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We are in conversation with Ramit Sethi, who has been on this show previously. He's a friend, author of the New York Times bestseller, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, financial guru to millions of readers. Now, he has relaunched his book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, 10 years later with a second edition updated and expanded for a new age. Vermeet and I discussed the additions and omissions he decided to make in the new version of his book and why the untold realities of executing a prenup with your partner-to-be. Ramit shares details from his own experience and the current attacks on financial experts who believe in personal accountability, including yours truly. Here we go. Here's Ramit Sethi. Ramit Sethi, welcome to So Money again, and congrats on the new I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. You're in your apartment, right? I can hear the sirens. It's cool. We keep it real on the show. Okay, good. It is. It's a very urban environment. So yeah, I'm in my apartment and you can hear lots of stuff from the city below. I love it. It's why people, I think, enjoy podcasts because you never know what's going to come in the background. (laughs) But seriously, congratulations on I Will Teach You to Be Rich, the second edition. This is, uh, what, 10 years later? 10 years later. The book came out March 09, which, do you know what was going on in March 09? I'd like to not remember. (laughs) It was, it turns out it was the bottom of the recession, the absolute bottom. And I remember going on a book tour and all these local news directors looked at me like I was crazy because I wanted to talk about investing. And they were like, nobody cares about that. They want to know how to save money. We have 10% unemployment. And I said, yeah, we'll talk about savings, but that also means there's 90% employment and we got to focus on the long term. And it turns out if you had bought the book March 09 and you just followed the advice in this $10 book, you would have been financially set for life. So I'm pumped to get back out and and update with a lot of new stuff that I've learned over the last decade. Well, let's talk about some of those updates. Some things you kept to keep, you chose to keep. Other things you chose to omit. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about the the stuff that you didn't want to repeat in the new edition. How did you decide what stayed and what left? Well, my publisher wanted me to go and do a quick update. (laughs) And I told them, I don't do anything quick. If I want to do it, I want to do it right. And so I finally decided a couple of years ago that 10 years was a nice time for updating. And, you know, I think honestly, people want to know that the information they're getting is fresh. So I went through the entire book and I had been keeping notes of things that were new or accounts that I wanted to recommend. But I also noticed that there were things in there that I just that needed to be changed. So some of them were obvious ones like interest rates had changed. And there are some accounts that don't exist anymore. And I changed those. 
some of them were things that I think I just kind of have moved beyond. You know, there were some jokes I made in the first edition that very candidly, I would not write those jokes now. And I think, you know, part of um, getting a little older, a little bit more mature and having some perspective is realizing, you know, money is, it should be very inclusive. And, you know, I started off the book, in fact, the first two pages are photos of some of my students who use the book. And I was really proud because they're black, white, men, women, young, old, every diversity you can imagine, really intentionally to show that rich can be all different, right? Rich can be you, me, it can be different lives. And so I think that um, part of updating the book is really kind of turning the page and saying, here's what needs to be in there and here's what needs to not be in there. When it comes to your personal definition of a rich life, has that changed over the last 10 years? I know lots uh, changed for you. Your business has grown. You've gotten married. You've become more vocal about not just money, but psychology and business and, and, and um, human, rela- human behavior. And so yourself personally, how has your financial mindset evolved? What's your new definition of rich, if there is one? Definitely, it has changed, for sure. So when I was writing the book, you know, I was in my late 20s. And when I initially started thinking about money, a rich life for me was simply being able to buy an appetizer when I ate out. It was really as simple as that, because I never got to do that growing up. And then it was, I want to take a taxi during summer instead of going into the sweltering heat of the subway. And now that I've accomplished those things, you know, my dreams got bigger. And so it was about impact for my business. Now that I'm married, uh, we got married last year. And so a lot of those rich life dreams are about what the two of us want. And that's things like we want to travel together for one month per year. And we want to have a household where we do certain things and we're trying new approaches. And like my wife has her own business. I have my business and we help each other out. So those have become part of my rich life. Whereas before it was mostly just, you know, what, you know, can I spend an extra 10 bucks on a taxi? And I think now it's become a bit bigger and also more collaborative as opposed to just what I want. Was it difficult merging your finances with another person? I think that it's harder for our generation because we're getting married later and so effectively, inherently, there's a, there's, I think it's, a, you have to work out a few more kinks. Like you're just so used to managing your money your way. And then trying to communicate that with someone else and trying to find common ground, I think can be an extra hurdle. What was that like for you and your wife? It was pretty challenging. It was challenging, but it was also very revealing. So, like, just to put it really bluntly, I have not had to compromise financially in the last 15 years. You know, if I wanted something, I would work hard and I would get it. And I have my own philosophy about money, automation, low-cost investing, growth, you know, that kind of stuff. And I met my wife and we started talking about money. And the first conversation that we we really had was um, my wife asked for some advice on some 401k thing at work. And I said, well, I'll help you, but read this book first. (laughs) So I gave her my book to read. And then she came back. And she said, like, hey, that's, that's cool. I read it. I just have this one other question. So we went through it, and she was really open with me about how much she made. And to me, it was great. Like, we were opening up. We were talking. What I realized, or I didn't realize until much later, was one day she said to me, 
you know, I feel like I have shown you all my financial cards and you haven't told me anything about your finances. And I kind of realized at that moment, I had violated my own rules of communication. Like, of course you should talk to your partner, but talk means it's not just one person sharing. Both of you need to open it up. And so, so that was like a big moment for me because I, ne I never really talked about my personal finances with anyone except for a couple of people on my financial team. And so I did that. And that was a really, really pleasant conversation. In fact, one of the favorites that I can remember around money, because we got to talk about, now that we both know about each other's money, what does it mean for us? What kind of life do we want to lead? So that was one. And then two was sort of deciding to get married. And, and what does that mean for us financially? And then the third part was merging our finances. And so all of those were three different stages. Each of them very eye-opening, but I would say also pretty challenging. So take us through the prenup conversation. I know that you have shared that with me. And if I may ask you to divulge a little bit on the show, would love to learn more about that experience. So, so we sat down and we had this very adult conversation that for the first time we talked about when do we want to be engaged? Do we want to have kids? If so, how many? Where do we want to live? And uh, at the end of that conversation, I was pretty nervous, but I said to her, I said, you know, it's important to me that we sign a prenup. And her reaction, which was, I had no idea what to expect. She said that she said, you know, all right, I'm a bit surprised, but I don't know much about this. So I'd like to get educated, but I'm open to it. And that was all I wanted. That was all I wanted was to have that discussion. And so for me, I thought, okay, great. Like the next steps are, we both need to research this. We need to get lawyers. We need to have some conversations and come to an agreement. And then we sign it. I thought it would be fairly straightforward. I would say that it got, it started off pretty straightforward. We did do research. We did um, get lawyers. And the conversation that we had around why a prenup was, I told her, I said, you know, we both grew up in very similar households. Both our moms are teachers. And I said, you know, you see my lifestyle. Like, I, I don't go around buying a Ferrari or anything like that. I live in New York. It's a pretty straightforward lifestyle. I do have a couple nice things I like to spend on. But for the most part, I like to save my money. But because of the industry I've chosen and because of good fortune and a lot of luck, I have built up this business and this asset. And it's important to me that we talk about it and we come to an agreement on what that means before we get married. Um, she, again, Cass was open to it, but that was a really hard decision for me to even bring up. You know, I called my dad and in the, I don't know anybody in the Indian culture who has signed a prenup. But then again, this generation, we have entrepreneurs who have started their business in their twenties and sometimes they've grown that business a lot. And my dad was, he really surprised me when he said, you know what? I can understand why you might be thinking about that. That kind of blew my mind that my dad was like, oh yeah, like I understand why you might think about that. So what a prenup is, would it be helpful if I kind of talk yeah, about I'd what love I learned? To, as a follow-up, I'd love to maybe generalize this a little bit for the audience. Like who should be getting one? Yeah. Because I do think that it, it has this perception that only it's for the wealthy, but 
to your point, if you have assets that you want to protect, and also like depending on where you live, the state, you might want to consider a prenup because a lot of states are different in terms of how divorce proceedings could go down de facto. It really surprised me to learn who talks about prenups and who signs one. And I had thought the way that we learn about this is like watching TV and the media. And you think it's like if you're a Kennedy, you sign a prenup or if you're some industrialist. And that's okay. I guess they do, too. But if you have any assets before you come to a marriage, that could be a house. That could be a business. That could be, you know, any portfolio that you've grown to any size that could make make a very good reason to sign a prenup. And what a prenup does is it essentially sets the rules of the money that you money or assets that you have premarital. That's before you got married. If the marriage ends for any reason, what happens to that? And I have to say, like, this was probably one of the more difficult parts for me was just, do I even bring this up? Because the way that prenups are portrayed in the media is, you know, some one person's trying to screw another and you're already planning to fail and it's very unromantic. I mean, have you heard those things before? I've not only heard of that in the media, I've heard that from the attorneys who draft prenups. <laughs> really? That's they're like, they're like, let me just tell you, if a couple comes to me, I mean, this is, I guess, off the record, but here we are talking about it. I won't say who told me, but in my own research, in talking to divorce attorneys and in talking to attorneys who draft prenups, they say that a lot of times their clients will end up getting divorced. It's just, I don't know, they don't want to say that it's because of the prenup, con- like, you know, there's something there sometimes if they're if a couple wants to do a prenup, there might be some underlying issue as to why. It doesn't sound like that's the case with you and your wife, but sometimes there it may also suggest that there is a bit of divisiveness in the relationship when it comes to money. Yeah, interesting. Well, I had to go through all of these feelings um, before because, again, no one really educates you about it and no one talks to you until I started talking to my friends especially my entrepreneur friends. And then so many of them said, oh yeah, like got to do it. Or I signed a prenup. We signed a prenup. I was like, what? How did we never talk about right. this? These were friends I know for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And by the way, men and women, okay, mm-hmm. signing prenups. So I was absolutely flabbergasted and surprised that this is one of those things that people really don't talk about. And then when you do, it's behind closed doors. So I'm actually really glad to get a chance to shine the light on this because of all the things I learned. So what I learned is in any business agreement, of course, you would talk about, you know, what happens if if things are successful and what happens if you don't. Now, I don't think a marriage is just a business agreement at all. Right. I think there's a lot of different aspects, but I think that a marriage is is like the most ideal and biggest partnership of all it's love, Mm -hmm. it's romance. It's also teamwork. And I mean, like take you and your husband, for example, you have kids, that's a partnership and it's a partnership in every core deep way that you can think about financial and otherwise. So it makes sense if you have a substantial asset to really talk about the issues of what happens if for whatever reason this marriage ends And I have to give all the credit to my wife, who was very open to have these discussions. And so we started talking about it. And she was very open in 
in basically saying like, okay, like, what does this mean? Let's talk about, you know, what kind of life do we want to lead? And also what happens if for whatever reason the marriage ends? So I thought that everything would go smoothly, but this is where it got really hard. We had us two discussing, then we had the lawyers, each of us had our own lawyer. And at a certain point, this went on for months and it was pretty stressful to tell you the truth. And finally, she said, like, we should go see somebody because we are not getting anywhere with this. And, um, we, you know, it was a pretty, you know, you're planning a wedding. You're also talking about this. And she was totally right. So if anyone's wondering, how do you find a, uh, a therapist? We literally went on Yelp. <laughs> oh, my gosh. A money therapist or just a general therapist? Just a general one. I mean, at this point, we're like, we'll talk to anybody. And... So we, we walked a couple blocks and, and we talked to this therapist and it was one of the best things we've ever done. So we went in there. I've never been to a therapist before, but I was very, uh, we both are into self-development and growth. And so we were both like, yeah, let's do it. We need help. And we walked there and this therapist just started talking about, you know, what do we think of money? What do we want the other person to know? And we went to two or three of these sessions and each time we walked out, we looked at each other like, yeah, that was that was really good. And we should come back because we have more to unpack. It turns out we grew up with different money messages. And we've also, in our careers, we have thought about money in a different way. And we have different money needs. Like I wanted to be appreciated for all the work I've put into building my portfolio, which is going to you know help us with creating our rich lifestyle. That, I think that's fair, right? You mm -hmm. want to be appreciated for that. But my wife had a different perspective, right? She wanted to know that she would feel safe. And it's so funny and so ironic that even though I've been thinking about money and psychology for 20 years, my first response to that was, it was so prototypically male. I was like, look at the spreadsheet. Like the math is so, it's so clear. And th that's, that's exactly the wrong approach. I wish I could go back in time and tell myself, we had, we needed to connect on where we were both coming from emotionally before we got to the spreadsheet. The spreadsheet was there. The numbers are there. You can play with the numbers. Those are like the last detail, but to understand like, how did we grow up with money? What did our parents teach us? What, what is our basic underlying philosophy about money? Both if things go well and if things don't. And we spent so much time talking about that. And I have to say it was really helpful to get an outside perspective to guide us, give us some new tools to use. And only then did the conversation really shift and we started like getting much, much closer to, to nailing down the actual agreement. Yeah, because now you each have context and I really credit the two of you for doing that pre-marriage. I think that's um, a huge step to get therapy because again, much like getting a prenup, getting therapy as a couple, that can be also perceived as, oh, you know. What's totally. going on there? There might, the things might not be good. Um, and so in hearing you, I also think about maybe there should be a book or an article about like the financial love languages that we all cling to. Sort of when you're saying, you know, you wanted appreciation, Cass wanted to feel secure. Um, I think knowing that it's, it's a little trick to be able to allow individuals in relationships to better communicate. Like you're saying the same thing, but it's how you say it. Yes. I, I totally agree. And I, I wish that I had embraced this earlier. So I made several mistakes in this that I hope can be useful to anyone who's even considering this. Um, 
the first thing that I would say is like, bring it up. If it's something you've been thinking about, like do your research and don't be afraid to talk about it. Um, I think I, I read a lot of stuff online and there's so many people who approach this conversation like petrified. Like, oh, I, I hope you're not mad, but I'm going to bring up this thing I've been thinking about. That's not the way to approach it. Um, I think a larger mistake that I made was um, not asking for help sooner, right? Us two trying to do it on our own. And at a certain point, it was clear, like, we need help. And in any other part of life, we're going to get help, whether it's a personal trainer or we take a cooking class together, whatever. Why wouldn't we ask for help earlier in this? And then to start doing this a lot sooner. I wish we had started this conversation way, way sooner. So if, if I could go back in time, that's what I would do. But I also think you can't rush it. You have to go through this process. And it's not a quick thing. It's not about efficiency. Um, it's going to take time. So that's just some, some lessons I would have used again. And hopefully it would be helpful to some of your listeners. This is so helpful. And you dedicate the book to Cassandra. So I'm glad we're spending a lot of time on this because clearly this is where you've grown the most. All right, Rumi, this question comes from our sponsor, Chase. We are asking guests this month as it is graduation season for a lot of college kids. Speaking of college, what's the one thing you wish you had learned about money when you graduated from Stanford? You know what? I, I was good at saving and investing and all that stuff. I wish I had had more fun. I wish I had been a little bit more serendipitous. And if someone invited me to uh, Coachella or some weird place, I should have just said yes. That's what I would tell myself. So spending your money on some of those fun, thrilling experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I I hear that. I I studied too hard in school too. And it's (laughs) frustrating because now I see my classmates who were out partying all the time and they, you know, they're like very accomplished. It did not slow them down. So I'm not <laughs> yeah, going to say really rethink the world. Yeah. Like, listen, I'm a parent now. I'm not going to be encouraging my kid to go out partying all the time. But I think that um, I will encourage them to mess up a little bit because it's important to mess up when you're young and supposed to, you know, when you've got real responsibilities. <laughs> Good answer. Sidebar question. I don't know. You, you read a lot of news and you're very up to date on what's happening in personal finance. Obviously, there's been lately, I think, a lot of criticism around the personal finance advice industry where, and I'm part of that, you're part of that. Um, You know, I have a philosophy that I think a lot of experts share is that there is this thing called personal accountability, right? Like you actually do have more control over your financial destiny than maybe you think, or maybe that you've been taught. That said, there's all this other systemic stuff that needs to change, right? Like there's obviously wealth discrimination. There's um, there's a lot of anger out there around sort of like the industry. And there are a lot of things that are broken um, that may not be within an individual's control. That is very much a part of how we create solutions to help people achieve wealth and get out of like the paycheck to paycheck cycle and get out of debt. Like what's your philosophy? Because there's a lot of criticism towards aimed at people like, you know, you and I, for example, who say, you know what, you need to automatically save, you need to ask for the raise. And, you know, these are the things you need to do in order to achieve wealth. And others would say, well, that's only part of it. And sometimes that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a great question. I'm so glad we get to talk about this. There's definitely systemic issues that are happening and you only need to look at people's debt levels from one generation to the next to see that. 
right? People don't just magically change their behavior from one generation to the next. There's something larger going on. There's something systemic going on. And we see that with, um, you know, think of companies that have engineered their entire basis is to extract the maximum amount of money they can from consumers. One great example is teachers unions. My mom retired as a teacher. I looked at her investment prospectus. You wouldn't believe the kind of investments they offer these school teachers. They're the worst, worst type of annuities you can imagine with these 4% loads. It's unbelievable. How is a school teacher supposed to understand that? and supposed to make informed decisions in a 30-page prospectus with size 8 font. That is systemic. There's someone very, very smart who's chosen to use his or her skills to extract money from school teachers, which I believe is predatory. And, you know, we can go all the way up to criminal predatory business like Wells Mm -hmm. Fargo. But, and there's a big but, whenever I see people who love to talk about all the reasons that the, the world is against them, You know, I just ask one question, what's your savings rate or what does your portfolio look like? And I had a question just two days ago from one of my students uh, and he said, what do you think about social security going bankrupt? I said, how much is in your Roth IRA? And he told me some tiny number. I said, why are we talking about social security? You would be better served putting an extra $100 a month into your Roth IRA and making sure that it's properly invested and automated then sitting here debating about social security. So I have to say that I definitely acknowledge there are some systemic issues and they are also like targeted in many times, in many cases against minorities who don't have access to the same uh, infrastructure that other people do. I get that. But I also say we need to take responsibility for our own behavior. Do you have savings? Do you have an investment account? Are you putting, Oh, you can't afford a hundred dollars a month. How about 50? How about 20? And when you start to take control of your own financial life, nobody else is going to do it for you. So when you do take control, then you start to see all the other things that you can do. And in the new edition of the book, I actually have an entire section on victim culture and Ah. how we, yes, how we have allowed ourselves to victimize ourselves. And it also, it almost becomes a competing uh, game. Oh, you buy a house. How could I buy a house? I can't even save a hundred dollars. Save $100, I can't even live in a cardboard box. And it almost becomes this competition. I see this on Reddit all the time. And I have zero tolerance when people compete to see who's the bigger victim. I would rather they say, you know what? Some people start on third base, some people don't. Let's play with the cards we're dealt and let's try to focus on where we can go from where we are today. You also have some contrarian views around things that have been very much sort of like the gospel of how to become rich is, you know, invest in real estate, cut out those lattes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how has your tune changed on some of those things over the years? And what's the latest kind of, you know, uh, traditional advice that you want to take down? Well, my advice hasn't changed on those at all because I'm right. Buying real estate is not always the best investment. Despite what the real estate industry, which is one of the biggest lobbying industries in the world, will tell you. So you, you hear people saying, oh, buy a house for the tax deduction because they're not building land anymore because you're throwing money away on rent. Those are very simplistic views. Most people think, oh, I bought a house for $200,000 20 years ago. It's 400000 now. I made 200000 in profit. Well, you forgot to factor in your taxes, your interest, 
uh, and a variety of overspending and maintenance that you wouldn't have had for rentals, et cetera, et cetera. Just to give you an example, I rent by choice in Manhattan and I have for 10 years and that's very intentional. I could go and buy a place tomorrow. Why don't I? Because I've run the numbers and it doesn't make sense. So I would say for everyone, don't believe the gospel you hear. Real estate is one where everybody wants you to buy. There's an incentive. The realtors want you to buy. Uh, the developers want you to buy. Everybody wants to Decide if it's the right decision for yourself. That's number one. The latte thing, you know, if I hear another person telling me to cut back on lattes, I'm going to fill up my bathtub with cold brew and just drown myself. Okay. <laughs> Too many of these experts going around. And I, I know these experts. Well, now it's, gua- now it's avocado toast. It's not lattes. Yeah, I know. Give me a break. And I know these, these experts and th- trust me, they buy plenty of lattes, not to mention some other very expensive stuff they happen to never talk about. So let's get real. Saving $3 a day on some tiny expenditure will make no material difference. Why don't you focus instead on automating your money, investing, getting 7 to 8% returns, getting your credit score, negotiating a salary. This is stuff I teach. You don't, if you get those things right, the 5 to 10 big wins, you never have to worry about lattes or avocado toast or appetizers. And a new one that I want to talk about is crypto and all of its ilk. Crypto, if you remember, just two years ago was the hottest thing in the world. And all these crypto folks were telling me that I was a Luddite because who is satisfied with 8% returns? And now all of them are gone. They disappeared off the face of the earth. Their LinkedIn profile used to say Bitcoin expert. Now it says like CBD specialist. Okay, they just go from one fad to another. So again, if you want to take 5 to 10% of your money and put it in something fun, be my guest. But if you take all your money and you don't have a diversified portfolio then you are making a huge mistake. What about college and mm. the value of an education? I know our friend James Altucher is very adamant and vocal about how that's also a, a sold as a false bill of goods. And to be honest, I don't think college is for everybody. I think like to your point, there are a lot of stakeholders in the whole college game, i.e. universities, the government, banks that want to lend more to students who shouldn't be borrowing to get this education that doesn't always lead to good jobs or jobs. So what's your tune on on that, investing in education? Okay. I have a really strong view on this. I'm so glad you brought this up. So you would think because I create online courses, right? I have courses around starting a business and finding a job and negotiating your salary, all kinds of stuff. You would think that I would be the first guy out there saying college is BS. I actually think that college can be one of the best investments you ever make. Let me give you a little bit of data. Data shows that the average college graduate over the course of their lives makes over $1 million more than a non-college graduate. That is right there, the answer to the question of, is it a good investment? Now, should you go to a really expensive school, like a second or third tier school that happens to be extremely expensive and doesn't offer you much better jobs? No. You should look at your finances and decide. You should also consider scholarships. I paid my way through undergrad and grad school through scholarships. So there are a lot of scholarships offering money and a lot of times people don't take advantage of them. They actually don't pay out their entire fund each year. If you choose to go to a school, you should get educated. And there's lots of ways you can ask what's the average salary of a graduate in this major. But I think we should also account for the fact that college is not just meant to provide an ROI financially. Like the things I learned, the people I met, I became a better citizen in college. I learned how to think critically. Those are things that you, I personally cannot put a price on. 
So I'm a big fan of college. I think you should be intelligent about it. You should be sensible. You should run the numbers. And also you should account for the intangibles. But I think it's a big mistake for people to go around Twitter telling everyone else that college is a complete waste of money. Watch what people do, not what they say. Most of the people who are saying this will send their very kids to college. Oh, man. Well, okay. I wish I was with you when the headlines were coming through about all these rich parents and paying big bucks to scam their kids into school, My specifically God. USC and Yale and Georgetown. Stanford. Stanford, your alma mater. What do you think yep. about that? Doesn't that make you annoyed? Um, yeah, it's more than annoying. I mean, it's uh, completely unethical and disgusting. Um, you know, and, and it's so surprising, too. These numbers, 50K, that's it? To, to buy your way into these elite universities was totally mind-blowing. I have to say, I went to Stanford for undergrad and grad school. And we, all of my Stanford friends are completely shocked about this. And I have to tell you, the, the university like sent out an entire email to all alumni. They're taking it really seriously, as they should. Um, when I was there, I met so many of the most talented people in so many different ways. And it, it's funny because I can only speak about Stanford where I went. Nobody really wore fancy clothes. You really would have no idea what anyone's financial status was. Um, it was a very just kind of relaxed environment. People wore shorts and t-shirts every day. Um, but what this um, situation and what these crimes have really uncovered is that there's this whole undercurrent, this whole different lens to view education through. And I think that these universities they should frankly be ashamed of themselves. People should be prosecuted. And this kind of thing is just totally unethical. Well, tell us what you really think, Ramit. I think that I uh, <laughs> completely agree with you. And, you know, there's also the other story, which is that, yes, there are these blatant crimes, but there's also the, the other part of this, which is that people have been more or less like insisting their way into college for many years through the purchase of buildings and donations and all of that. While it's not a for straightforward bribe, it's, you know, it's definitely um, in some ways a very rigged system. And um, hopefully now we're, you know, we're more attuned to it. Um, yeah. I, let me just say this. The rigging continues, by the way. Yeah. So I've read research about how in very wealthy uh, zip codes, you know, over half the students in that zip code get extra time to take their tests because they file for some certain type of ADA um, concession. The most wealthy zip codes are going to have access to information that others don't. And I don't agree with that. I think that it should be a level playing field. Everyone should have the same opportunity to succeed. I think that that is a nice theory. I do think, again, that if you're wealthy, you're going to have access to better tutors, et cetera. But it, it's just shocking, I think, for everyone involved in higher education, especially at these elite levels. It's supposed to be that, you know, you submit your application and it's, you know, a, a blind admission process, et cetera. And to hear that there's such a transparent transactional um, rigging happening behind the scenes, I think is really disappointing for, for many people, including me. Yeah, it really, um, well, lots has to change on the college front. There's so mm -hmm. much work to be done from the cost of college to the entrance to the experience totally. and the value. So um, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about some recent news as well as, of course, a deep dive into your book. Congratulations, Rami. I Will Teach You To Be Rich, second edition. 
This is airing in May and the book is out. So everybody, I encourage you to go grab it. It's only $15.95. And like you said, Rami, you'll make it back in spades. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. It's great to come back and uh, I'd love to do it again soon. Thanks so much to Ramit for stopping by. His new book is I Will Teach You to Be Rich, second edition, available everywhere. You can visit him at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com for more information. And you can also follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Ramit. All this information is at SoMoneyPodcast.com. You can download the transcript, listen to the audio, share it. You can also click on Ask Farnoosh while you're on the site and let me know what your question is for the Friday episodes. And if you'd like to co-host with with me. Also let me know there. Thanks for tuning in everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.